Welcome to a series of podcasts for the Oxford Strategic Leadership Programme. I'm Tracy Camilleri. In the tradition of the OSLP, we'll explore leadership through multiple lenses, looking at culture, creativity, language and power, lateral thinking, change and the challenges facing women leaders. Against a global backdrop of so much strain and pressure, we hope to bring you a reason for some time out for reflection. Hi, I'm Tracy Camilleri and today I'm talking to Martin Kemp, Professor Emeritus of Art History at Oxford University, author, curator and one of the world's leading authorities on Leonardo da Vinci. So welcome, Martin. It's lovely to have this chance to talk to you. So tell us, where, where are you at the moment in this lockdown crazy world? Well, I'm in my office at home. You may be able to see a, a rather large collection of books. I've sold about three quarters of them and still have thousands. Anyway, uh, I've been working outdoors in the garden on the terrace surrounded by flowering plants, which is lovely. But of course, the light conditions there for filming are not good. So I've come indoors. Are you in Oxfordshire then? I'm in Woodstock, which is 10 miles from Oxford, as you may know. I wanted to start in a different place. So I wanted to start actually in Cambridge and ask you, if you will, a little bit about your kind of personal journey, because I know that you started off studying natural sciences at Cambridge and then shifted to being an art historian. And I wondered, for someone who's thought about so much about looking and seeing, how that kind of double vision that you've acquired, both being a scientist and someone steeped in the humanities, how that has served you? Has it been a blessing or a, a bane? When I made the switch, I was doing natural sciences at Cambridge, predominantly biological sciences, when I deigned to do any work on them. And I came from a family really with no books, no pictures, no music. And I went to an ambitious state school that measured its success by how many people they could get into Oxbridge and state scholarships. And science was definitely a serious subject. Um, in my class, so I think 32 people, 28 people did science subjects. Now, life doesn't work like that, but this was Harold Wilson's white heat of technology era, and uh, it didn't occur to me anybody ever made a living in the in the arts, and I had no contact with the arts. I could do art, I could do art subjects, and I could do science. It wasn't pressure so much as seemed to be an automatic choice. Since I could do science, that was what you took the scholarship in. So I went, I went to Cambridge, and it was an absolute revelation. I'd had some interest in art before, but um, going to the Fitzwilliam Museum, seeing the pictures there, John Cleese was doing the cabarets, Trevor Nunn was doing the plays, director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. I didn't know these people were any good. I, I did posters for Trevor Nunn. Um, now I had this amazing education. There were always fellow undergraduates who knew about painting or knew about music or knew about literature, about which I knew collectively almost nothing. Um, so I got this wonderful education, which was very little connected to me um, sitting in the lectures or going to the labs in science. So it seemed a natural move. When I moved into art history, it seemed there was no connection. It didn't seem to me to be, it was a different field. You know, it's all classified. It's all parceled up in these uh, disciplinary boundaries. And I was looking at Renaissance painting, but also at French 19th century painting. And there didn't seem to be any overlap. And then what happened was a young TV producer for the BBC was doing his diploma programme not to be transmitted on Leonardo's water drawings. Um, and he'd obviously gone to the big people. He'd gone to Gombrich. He'd gone to Sherman, who taught me. Gombrich taught me a little bit. And eventually it knocked down to me. And he said, would I help? And I thought, well, why not? 
I didn't have any any sense of it. And Gombrich gave us an unpublished paper of his on Leonardo's water drawing, which looked at the art of the water drawings, but also the science, the theories by which water moved. And suddenly these two areas just came together. And I knew that in the Renaissance and right up really until the 19th century, that these are not disciplines. You couldn't go off to the Royal College of Surgeons to study surgery in the Renaissance that came in the 19th century. So suddenly I realized that culturally speaking, these endeavors were not to be pigeonholed, to be classified according to our rather rigid sense of what a subject is. We'll come back to Leonardo in a minute, um, but I just want to stick with that idea of pigeonholing things and and to your sense of what things were like when you were growing up. And it strikes me we're we're at quite a similar point now. I mean, in the weighing scales of how we allocate public money to science or the humanities or the arts or even the value, the market value of a graduate student in the humanities. The humanities seem to be the poor relation of the sciences once again. What do you feel about that diminished status in the light of what you've just said? Yeah, I think it varies greatly. In America, I was at Princeton as a visiting professor a few years ago. And in America, it's in a disastrous situation to my mind. I mean, the humanities are a thin uh, kind of uh, decorative crust on the real business of uh, of running society, um, which I think is pretty disastrous. In in Oxbridge, I think things are in pretty good shape. In London University with Courtauld, I think they're in decent shape in art history. One of the things that's happened in my time is that scientists have increasingly sold themselves on the grounds of utility. Now, I'm friendly with a good number of terrific scientists who do basic science. You know, these are demonically driven by wanting to know how something works. But I was on the court of University of St. Andrews. We used to tour the science department and every lab we looked at, they said, oh, this has got great utility for society. And I said, why are you doing this? This is... Um, you're, you're not doing low temperature physics because it helps our refrigerators. Um, you're doing it because it's the frontier. And they said, yes. But um, and I said, if you carry on emphasizing the utilitarian aspect of science, you'll find that this will come back and bite you, that the people who are doing basic research, the theory-driven people, the people doing fundamental research, will find themselves marginalized. So I think there are dangers in science as well. The paradox in the humanities is that the amount of public interest is enormous, of course. I mean, I've done exhibitions which have attracted a quarter of a million people, and more people in Glasgow now go to museums and art galleries and go to football matches. So there's this paradox of the enormous amount of public interest and the political view that we basically need drivers for the economy, even though the arts are huge drivers for the economy, but it's, you don't justify the arts on that basis. But... Um, Things are poised in a rather dangerous way. Thinking about the economy, I was I was actually rereading your book, Seen Unseen, over the last couple of months, you know, in the context of this pandemic and thinking, reflecting this this invisible virus has become the lens through which we see everything at the moment. And I wondered, as someone who is a professional watcher, what what you're noticing at the moment, what you're, what's hidden in plain sight, what's interesting you about these odd months that we've been living through? Well, they're very broad things, but in visual terms, I'm a historian of the visual, and how the virus is represented is just extraordinary. 
Uh, it doesn't look like anything a virus, obviously, because we can't see it. We're having to use uh, use data gathered in various ways to construct something which is seeable. And it then becomes this identifiable kind of landmine for human health. And people discussing it, even scientists, then anthropomorphize it as if it's an enemy. The politicians say it's an enemy. It's not. It's a, it's a very, very complicated biological machine, which just does what it does. There was somebody on the Today program today saying, oh, it, it looks at us and sees a great big cuddly edible gingerbread person. You know, it doesn't see anything. It, 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 that imputes a kind of intentionality to it. But somehow or other, the, the abstractness doesn't do the job. You need it to look like something. And if it looks faintly menacing with all these little points sticking out, then that helps a good deal. Uh, Bridika Nerlish, a historian of science I know, has been collecting images, and uh, she doesn't want to write a book about it, but she should. I might well say to her, why don't we write a book about the visualization of um, of these things? And we have to get them into visual form. You know, if we look at radar altimetry of Venus, you can't see anything on the Venus landscape. It's simply the density of the atmosphere is you can't see it. But they used radar altimetry from these uh, spacecraft to construct views that look like Turner paintings. Well, maybe let's come back to that. But I just want to stick with that crown-like image of the virus that you talk about. And again, another book of yours, From Christ to Coke, where you, you really think about what it is about an image that enables it to live through different generations to keep kind of accruing meaning. And I'm sort of something like, I don't know, Che Guevara's image on a T-shirt or something like that. And and what, what does an image need in order to transmute, if that's the right word, into being an icon? Yeah, it needs various things. Uh, people ask me a good deal, what are the characteristics, what are the criteria that make something an iconic image? And I say, if I knew that, I'd be the greatest marketing guru in the world. Um, it, it's a complicated conjunction of factors, not the same for each image. In science, I I chose E equals MC squared, though it's a formula, it's a visual image, you know, it's on T-shirts. And the E equals MC squared, which wasn't Einstein's formula, I have to say, it was, um, it comes out of his work, but he used to say, as it, it has been said that E equals MC squared, he never quite owned it. But it came to identify Einstein, and he had this fantastic public image, this tousled-haired man. He initially avoided the camera. He, he realized that by not wearing socks and by having this mane of hair and so on, this was all part of his image. It then got caught up with the atomic bomb and time had a cover. They had four covers on Einstein. Initially, he was regarded as a rather undesirable enemy alien on the first appearance, but um, they got an atomic bomb exploding behind him as the E equals MC squared written across it. We know that Einstein was totally horrified by the idea of a bomb. And indeed, if you know E equals MC squared, you can't build a bomb out of that. The double helix, a very romantic story, the, the conquest to do it. So with um, scientists running to, to get the, including Linus Pauling, and um, looking for this key to life, you know, where it explains who we are. It doesn't, but that was thought. If you could crack the DNA, you can crack the genetic code, you can tell us who we are, why we think like we do, and why we get ill in certain ways. A lot of overselling, but um, and it's a wonderful image and very 
recognizable, immediately recognizable, that um, you have a T-shirt with E equals MC squared or a double helix on it breeds a certain air of, uh, of knowing what's what. I was thinking as well of symbolic images and what's been going on over the last few weeks vis-a-vis statues in cities and towns. And I remember you saying, you know, we, we need to ask serious questions always of images. I mean, whether they're graphs or PowerPoint slides or pictures or, or statues. And people have been asking questions of these statues. And I just wondered what, you know, what you've been thinking about, you know, the symbolic power of just the image of toppling a statue or the kind of the, the accumulated kind of projection onto these statues and, and, and what you've been thinking about, what you've been seeing and hearing over the last few weeks. Yeah, there are two dimensions to that to answer the question. First of all, it is amazing the power that still remains in images. You know, we think of the Reformation in, in Britain and Europe where Catholic papist images were knocked over and destroyed. And you can understand people in the late medieval Renaissance period believing that there was an essence, a presence actually inside the statue, inside the work of art. We don't believe that, but somehow or other we endow these statues with enormous symbolic emotional power. Although most of the time, of course, we don't look at them. If I said to a member of the public, what statues are there in Trafalgar Square, apart from Nelson, they'd get nowhere. I wouldn't get very far. So suddenly these, uh, on a criterion, which is one I do believe in, that being very critical of people who've been involved in slave trade or very dubious eugenic practices or whatever, um, I have great sympathy with that. My view has rather changed. Um, initially, my reaction was it was there, it was a statue, you can't rewrite history, which is a phrase which has been used a lot. But I've actually changed my view on that. I've been thinking about the placement of them. The placement of them is a political come social act. The choice of who goes on these pedestals at that time, it's not an artistic act. You know, it's, it's not something you might be exhibited at the Royal Academy, possibly, but I mean, basically, you're employing an artist. But the, re- the reason for having it there is that you regard this person as worthy of commemoration. So it, it's a decision taken in a social context and a political context. And removing it is a social context and political context. So you're simply using the same basic mechanisms, but with quite different criteria. But it's difficult. I looked, for instance, at Central Park. There was an image of a gynecologist, one of the great pioneering gynecologists in, in 19th century, early 20th century America, who had a statue on the edge of Central Park. And that was defaced and eventually was taken down because he conducted experiments on black women. He was a major figure, uh, but nonetheless, he had conducted these experiments, so he came down. I thought, why don't I look at Central Park, which clearly doesn't come out of anywhere. And Central Park was created by ousting Negro communities, as they would be called in those days, uh, black or Native American and African communities. They had a school, they had some churches, they had houses, and they were ousted from Central Park to make this green space in the middle of the city, which of course everybody identifies that as an iconic thing in in America. And the idea they wouldn't have Central Park is unthinkable. But if you take it back hard enough, I could make a case for saying we should uh, give Central Park back to the ancestors of the people who are ousted for very small sums of compensation.
you know, I think we're all having to ask different questions, aren't we? About, I mean, it's been an incredibly interesting and um, challenging time, actually, for all of us. Genuinely difficult for an art historian. You can say, well, these are aesthetic objects, but as it happens, most of these public statues are pretty gruesome. They're really, they're really not very good. They do a job, but they're not exactly Rodin. Martin, it'd be a waste to talk to you and and not just touch on Leonardo, if you don't mind. But if if I think back to the wonderful lectures that you did on some of the leadership programs that I was involved with um, several years ago, and one particularly about how Leonardo thought about problems on paper. And I remember you tracing us through almost, you know, 12 or 13 different ways of thinking, you know, sort of from mirror writing to calculations, to sketches, to diagrams, and so on, worrying at a problem from all sorts of different perspectives. And I think the world of business that I'm so steeped in, you know, that we seem to have set processes, PowerPoint, Excel, ways of looking at things? And this is a big question. Maybe it's not a good question, but I mean, what could we learn from how Leonardo tackled a problem? What could we learn now from him? Well, you don't have to learn anything from Leonardo. He's just a wonderful figure. But if you want to learn things from Leonardo, uh, he shows us that if you have knowledge in separate silos, that what you can do with that knowledge is limited in a very serious way. That as soon as we get images of water in motion with waveforms and uh, turbulence and we put them beside other forms of motion, whether it's air, whether it's hair, once you get these archetypal physical phenomena and you can then think of it across these various disciplines. I've just done an an edition of the Bill Gates manuscript, the one he bought and looks after very well, the Codex Lester, which is about water in the body of the earth. So the human body, the body of the earth are all part of the same set of phenomena. They vary, obviously, how they do things, but but they are essentially operating in the same kind of field. And that is important in a whole series of ways, partly in lateral thinking, that often the great scientific advances come when somebody's come in from a new area. To go back to DNA and Watson and Crick, Crick was a physicist and knew all about X-ray diffraction and creating and reading the images. Um, uh, Watson, well, it was a rather bumptious, self-confident biologist with big theories. That conjunction of the two different skills really made the breakthrough where otherwise it wasn't happening. So there's that lateral thinking dimension to it. But there's also a dimension that Leonardo thinks you shouldn't mess around with nature. If you're a water engineer, you persuade the water to do what it wants to do and you make use of it. So there's a fundamental respect in Leonardo for nature and a vision of the human being as an operating thing uh, working within nature itself. So we have this hubris that we somehow can stand above nature, which, of course, COVID crisis said that we're actually not very good at standing above these things and adopting this lordly posture that we're the master of everything we survey. But Leonardo believed that absolutely totally. That's wonderful, that idea of power as being something that almost just channels things rather than controls things. And as you say, works with nature rather than against nature. And again, brings us back to where we started this conversation about, you know, just the 
the serendipity, the invention that you get from bringing together different ways of thinking, whether it's science and art history in your case, or whether it's um, Watson and Crick, and that, that, you know, the very narrow view of mastery and specialism and focus that perhaps we pursue too enthusiastically can actually close us off to that sort of inventiveness that you're talking about. One of the problems we have, of course, is that each professional area now has such a body of knowledge and big data has made that worse in a way and big data often leads to the theoretical issues the actual fundamental big questions getting lost under this torrent of statistical data which is not a very healthy situation and always looking back you know to things that have happened in the past and and to have the courage to to step into what we don't know is i think part of leadership my instinct cliche which um, A.S. Byatt, the author, seemed to like, was that art and science begin where knowledge ends. They do that in different ways. Uh, My idea of structural intuitions is that the artist will look at something and will see a phenomenon and think, ah, there's something going on there, let me do with that. The scientist will look at the phenomenon and go, ah, there's something going on there. What they do with it is quite different. Very often it's that intuition that something interesting is going on and that it's got potential to be developed. And that that is shared by art and science. And if you read Einstein, he envisaged the his theories came to him in a sort of pre-verbal and pre-mathematical state. And he said he sort of felt them. And then he did the maths afterwards. That's interesting. That Can I say that feeling? Because another thing I wanted to ask you about was fakes and authenticity and and again at the moment you know so much about kind of a lack of trust I suppose in politicians and and business leaders particularly and the need to trust them particularly at moments of crisis and you have thought a lot I mean particularly around Leonardo Salvatore about you know what makes something how do we know something's authentic how do we know if it's a fake? What's true? What's not? And I wanted to ask you whether you've got any insights there, but also what separates a, a fantastic reproduction, a fantastic fake, I suppose, from something that's really real? And uh, why is it always lesser? Shall we take the Salvatore Mundi first? Yeah, yeah. Um, as a result of that, I'm in a body called Authentication in Art, which is uh, doesn't run positive authentication but it's for scrutinizing how it goes on and the protocols the way we do it is totally chaotic there are different bits of knowledge and different criteria that different people have the auctioneers rely a lot upon traditional connoisseurship and a good deal upon provenance upon the early history of the painting scientific examination is is another thing an art historian like myself will look at how it fits into the artist's of and indeed how it expresses the theories either of the time or or of the particular artist involved and we've got these various sorts of evidence and we've got the status of the different sorts of evidence so i tried to look at the evidence and say well the scientific analysis unless you're very lucky and get out a wonderful underdrawing is basically saying there is no reason for this not to be by leonardo uh, but once you've got that scientific test people think oh it's science therefore it's shown it's leonardo it doesn't it tells us the pigments are right it tells us that none of the technical things are outside leonardo's range but it doesn't tell us it's by leonardo so i've been nagging away saying we actually do need to judge the status of different sorts of evidence 
which in science or in any serious intellectual subject in the university is, is taken, that you've got protocols, you, you judge the evidence, and different evidence does different kinds of jobs, sometimes contradictory, in which case you have to work out what you're prioritizing and what's gone wrong. So at the moment, the whole system in art attribution is a scandal for discipline which seems to take itself seriously. The the question of uh, fakes and good replicas is very interesting at the moment because you can now, and there's a firm based in Spain, run by an Englishman, but based in Spain called Factum Arte, and they are doing totally spectacular facsimiles of works of art based upon surface scans upon enormous amount of data. So it's not just a reproduction. It actually has all the 3D stuff going on. You know, a bit of thick white paint comes out through their survey. It's a bit of thick white paint and could be remade. And they are awesomely good if you don't touch them. They're not quite the same because a painting, particularly, say, a Rembrandt or a Titian or something complicated, there are lots of layers of paint and there are translucent layers so it's not just a question of imitating the surface effects, which the reproduction does, but it's a question of getting something that reacts with light. If you're doing a painting with opaque pigments, translucent pigments, with glazes, with warm colours, with cold colours, um, it's a living thing in different lights, different spectral compositions of light, different levels of illumination. It, it moves around and does things. So we've not quite got to that point. But I'm not worried if, if they manage to do that, fine. We'll still want it to go and see the original thing. It's like the the bed that Queen Elizabeth I slept in. That uh, it, it's just a bed in a way, but uh, uh, there's a human desire to to know the real thing. But I'm very I'm very relaxed about wonderful one to one reproductions. Which unless you get really close and start with my magnifying glass or start touching it, then then you can't really tell. But I went to the World Chess Championships in London with Carlson playing, and we know that Deep Mind can beat either of them, but we go there to see these two guys sweating in a in a glass chamber with sundry people like myself watching under enormous tension. Or we we watch a hundred meter sprint in the Olympic Games, and we know very well a cheetah can go quicker than the champion. So there is a human dimension which I think is not negotiable. Yeah, interesting that human dimension and your your. Your reference to context and and how drawn we are and how moved we are by just seeing, uh, understanding the humanity of things. As you say, we can be hugely impressed by what computers, AI and so on can produce. But there is something, isn't there, about, I don't know, standing in front of the real thing or hearing the real thing. One of the things that makes human beings special is the mess. The mess we all carry around inside us. The, the experience over more years, and I'm going to confess to it this, uh, in this circumstance, of the things we've done wrong, the messes, the successes, the total experience of being in a lived body for X years is is not something that a computer can replicate. The computer maybe can replicate the emotions, it can replicate lots of things, but that sort of random, strange mess that we all carry around inside us and drag up at various moments is, um, is something I think uh, computers are not going to be very good at. Well, Martin, I won't say anything about the state of your bookshelves behind your head as I'm looking at you now. But <laughs> I've got, I've got, I've just got a couple of short final questions for you. I mean, I could talk to you forever, but um, tell us a tiny bit about the book that you're writing now about Dante. I mean, it's, it's it, it surprised me when you said you're writing a book about Dante and Divine Light. Tell us. Yeah, well, I'm happy to do a small plug. 
It's called Visions of Heaven, Dante and the Art of Light. And I've written about perspective, which is the kind of rational business of light, of using mathematical perspective for creating space and, um, and for creating illusion and so on. I'd done the odd essay and looked at the other side of that coin, which is divine light. Uh, divine light has to be separated out from natural light if you're painting a naturalistic scene and you're using, pulling out all the stops with the top white and the top black and so on, you've got nothing left. So how do artists make divine light, which you need for certain subjects, you need it for transfigurations, for instance, but no, no self-respecting miracle occurs without light. And Dante is the person. So lastly, Martin, if I could thank you for this conversation by giving you a gift of a painting, any painting in the whole world, what, 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 what would you ask me for? No, I don't think it should go, this should go public. So this this can this can be a secret answer. If I had to, a desert island painting or just one to to take away, it would be the Giovanni Bellini, St Francis, and the Frick collection. And the Frick collection. Yeah, which has got everything. He's standing outside. It's not really a desert. He's standing in this wonderful fecund landscape with a little Benito hill town in the back. And he's looking up, his his arms are open, he's got little stigmata and his feet have got little stigmata. He's looking up at this light which comes in and bends an olive tree. And he wrote the Canticle to the Sun, which is one of the first ever poems in the Italian vernacular, to brother sun. So it's a radiant picture. It's in the book, needless to say, but even if I wasn't writing the book, this would be my answer from some time back. So... Um, I'm slightly worried that when there's a blank wall in the Frick collection, that they'll they'll know who to come to. <laughs> they'll blame me, though, because I will have taken it off the wall. Thank you so much, Martin. It's been a fantastic conversation. And thank you also for listening. And we will put a, a link to Martin's website, and you'll be able to see links to the books that he's written as well. I look forward to speaking to you again, Martin. Thanks so much. Yeah, no, no, it's a pleasure. Difficult questions, and I'll do better with them next time. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Do follow up with any links in the accompanying email. And please do let us have any comments or further thoughts you may have as a result of listening. Stay safe and remember to recommend the programme to anyone you think will enjoy it. We're back live in November 2021. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.